There was panic in September of 2014 for a certain segment of the American population. At a news conference, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers was being challenged by the fans. For uncharacteristically that year, the Packers started off very poorly. And after two losses at the very beginning of the season, the fans were concerned that maybe they wouldn't even make the playoffs. And to compound things, Aaron Rodgers was not playing up to his usual level of excellence. And so the reporters that were there at the conference, as well as the fans, were saying, what is it we're going to do? How are you all going to rectify the problems that are there? The offense doesn't seem to be clicking. The defense is a sieve. There doesn't seem to be any hope for the Packers this year. And very calmly in response, Aaron Rodgers said the following. R E L A X Relax. Those fanatics, which you understand is how we're all known as fans, are really reflective of so many of us. That when things don't seem to be going the way they should, we go into panic mode. We're concerned and thinking, how is it this will ever work out the way I think would be for my good? And Aaron Rodgers was not aware of the fact that his little spelling lesson is very appropriate for God's people. We get blindsided. We get hit by unexpected things. We have disappointments. We have discouragements. We have pressures. We have problems. We begin to worry. We begin to panic. R E L A X. Relax. Look with me in Ecclesiastes, in the 11th chapter. And let's see whether or not this concept of relax is appropriate for God's people. Now, recall that the book of Ecclesiastes is really a book that while truth is pertinent in every time and for every generation, is so pertinent and so appropriate for us in America today. Because the message in the book of Ecclesiastes is that if you are looking for finding permanent, lasting fulfillment, satisfaction, and joy in the things of this world, you're going to eventually be disappointed. Because temporal things are not permanent, even by nature of their classification. If something is temporal, 
It means it's only there for a period of time. If I am finding happiness in a happening, when the happening is gone, guess what else is gone? The happiness. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writing a book of wisdom for our benefit says to us that those who put their focus, their hope for meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction in the temporal will sooner or later find that it has no permanent lasting value. And in chapters 1 through 6, he provides the uh, information to prove his premise. And then in chapters 7 through 12, he makes the deductions that come from it. Since lasting joy and fulfillment, meaning in life is not found in the temporal, where is it to be found? And what he says is it's found with a life that is built on the foundation of and the focus upon God, the God who is eternal, the God who changes not, the God who is the sure foundation, the rock to uphold his people regardless of what storms and pressures and problems people face in life. In this section before us, Solomon is transitioning into the conclusion of this book. And as he moves to the conclusion, he particularly wants to address the young people in his audience. Shouldn't surprise us. I mean, he wrote a whole book called Proverbs for the sake of the next generation. And in the same way here, at the end of chapter 11, he points out that to the young man, to the, those who are still in childhood, to those who are still in the classification of youth, there is a perspective there to have in life. And why is it that Solomon gives this instruction? Well, the first is the fact that he is described here is life is hard and it's filled with uncertainties. There is no human being who hasn't had disappointments. There's no human being who hasn't been discouraged. There's no human being who hasn't failed. The reality is life is hard. And to have the right outlook on life and the appropriate worldview is absolutely essential. The second is the reality that no matter how much we wish we could, we cannot change what happens. An individual whose daughters are in a car accident and die in that would love to go back and change that. The individual whose family is there and he has a massive stroke, totally unexpected, would love to change that. What you and I recognize is we cannot change what happens to us. The real issue is how do we cope, how do we deal with what happens to us? And Solomon has been saying, if a tree falls to the north, that's where it lies. If it falls to the south, that's where it lies. The point is, you cannot change what takes place. 
And yet for the child of God, there's the recognition like Solomon had said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God has an appropriate time for every event under heaven, the time to be born, the time to die. He has made everything appropriate for his season. God is the one that is in charge, and there is the um, recognition that the events that come to pass, while we may not understand them, while we may have difficulty coping with them, are designed by God for the good of his children and the glory of his name. And the third thing that Solomon has just enumerated at the beginning of chapter 11 that we need to recognize is that light is pleasant. And it's good for the eyes to see the sun. You know what he's saying? Life is good. It's a gift. It's a blessing that God has given to us. And if we recognize that there's no lasting value in the temporal, our life is built upon and focused upon God. If we see that the things that happen in life are under the hand of God and I do not have the wisdom nor the capability of changing them, I need to know how to appropriately deal with and handle the things that come. And to the young people and for the benefit of us all, Solomon gives us, in my English translation, the three R's or rules of life that are essential for every individual. And what is it that he says? Well, beginning in verse 9. First thing to remember is rejoice. Verse 10, remove. And verse 1 of chapter 12, remember. So, he says, rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desire of your eyes, yet no God will bring you into judgment for these things. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting." Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no delight in them. Now, we have already looked in our last study at the idea of rejoicing. And we recognize that what Solomon is saying is that what needs to be cultivated is a joyful disposition. To be an individual who has a positive outlook on life. Not a Pollyannic type of idea that, you know, everything is coming up roses. But a recognition that life is a gift from God. And God is the one that's bringing things to pass. He's put opportunities before us. And I should be an individual that has a cheerful disposition enjoying the blessings that God has given, following the things that I would like to do while the whole time remembering I have an accountability to God. Not saying it in a way to negatively put a damper on the things that an individual would pursue, but to realize that we all have an accountability to the one who has made us. And that should have a guiding influence on what we give ourselves to. 
But by and large, God's people should be joyful, cheerful people. Not just taught by Solomon. Not just a concept for Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God, is it? When Paul wrote to the Philippians, what did he say? Rejoice. And how often? When I'm feeling good. Rejoice when things are going well. What Paul is saying is rejoice in the Lord always. And again, in case you missed it. Be a joyful person. Have a cheerful countenance. That demeanor of person is a greater impact and influence in the lives of others than walking around moaning and groaning every day like everyone else in the world. Isn't that true? Happy people tend to be infectious. And individuals that can go through all of the issues that we face in life with a positive, cheerful disposition are going to cause others to say, how is it you can respond that way? How is it that you can have joy in the midst of that circumstance? It's something that needs to be cultivated. It's a recognition that it's to be part of the characteristic of God's people. Today, I'd like us to focus on the second thing he says. He says, so remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. So if he says to remove it, to put it away, let's look at the first figure that he's using there. What is it saying to us? You know, it's just like if you have a closet at home with various clothes that you wear for different occasions, there are certain clothes that you need to get rid of. They're no longer to be part of your attire. Maybe they're worn out. Maybe they have holes in them. Maybe they don't fit any longer because you're not shaped the same as you used to be. Whatever it is, they're inappropriate clothes for you to be wearing. And when you try it on and it doesn't fit right, what do you need to do? Remove it. When I look at what's there and I recognize it's not something I can make use of, what do I need to do with it? Put it away. Get rid of it. And not only is he saying that the child of God needs to be an individual with a cheerful disposition... He is saying there is something that needs to be completely separated from the experience and the character of God's people. And what is it that he says is to be removed? Well, my version says that I am to remove vexation from my heart, my inner self. It's not to characterize me. And I am to put away pain or literally evil from my body. In other words, whether we're looking at the immaterial part of my being, the heart, 
or the material part of my being where my real self is being manifested to the world around me, there are certain things that are totally inappropriate for the child of God. So he says vexation. Not a word we commonly use or find in general conversations, but it's a word which would mean that I'm to put away discontent. It's a word which means I need to put away being annoyed. It's a word which means I need to put away irritation, distress, affliction. When I look at the Hebrew word, it's even a little more precise. It would be saying, put away anger. It would be saying, put away bitterness. It would be saying, put away grief. Put away sorrow. In other words, in my inner self, there really is not a place for bitterness. In my inner self, there's really not a place for being annoyed. In my inner self, there's really not a place for being distressed and worried. Then he says, from your body, put away pain or put away evil. I think it's a term, again, from the Hebrew, that we somewhat uh, fail to appreciate the real significance of it because we tend to think of evil in a moral sense rather than seeing it as something that has to do with distress and affliction, which is the most common way in which that Hebrew word is used. So when I put them all together, and if I try to use some of the idioms that uh, we would use in our culture, I think that what Solomon is saying is you shouldn't be upset. You shouldn't be bent out of shape. You shouldn't let something eat your lunch. You shouldn't be uptight. You shouldn't be somebody that is bothered. And certainly you shouldn't be somebody that harbors a root of bitterness. It is totally inappropriate. Get it out of your clothes closet. Remove it. It's not acceptable for God's people to be so annoyed, so controlled by a circumstance that's there, so irritated by what takes place, so overwhelmed by what someone does to you, for a disappointment that comes that it blows you out of the water. It is totally inappropriate for the child of God. Instead, R-E-L-A-X. Remove. Grief, pain, anger, disappointment, discouragement. Uptightness, 
bitterness from your character, from how you deal with the things that come. I want to pause and clarify here for a moment. Does the Bible teach that Christian people should never be angry? And the answer is no. But it does say that the wrath of man doesn't bring about the glory of God. It does say don't let the sun go down on your anger. It does say be angry but do not sin. You see, when any emotion gets perverted, it begins to control and dominate me and is therefore inappropriate. There is a righteous anger that God's people should have. It should bother me when I see some of the social injustices that take place in a culture when I see one individual doing some horrific things to another, when I see the word of God and the people of God being mistreated, there ought to be a welling up of anger against it, but not that it consumes and controls me. And certainly that it's not harbored where I become resentful and I become bitter and I become poisoned and I begin to think I'm going to get back at them. Remove it from your being. It is totally inappropriate. Why does he say that? Notice how he concludes verse 10. Because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. It goes by so fast. So fast. Usually for young people, (laughs) I was young. I was buff. I had dark black hair. I could run like the wind. Not anymore. Because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. What does the Bible say our human existence is like? Your life is but a vapor. Your life is like a puff of smoke. How it dissipates so quickly into the atmosphere and it's gone. And so the older members of the congregation think, boy, where did my life go? It's gone by so quickly. Isn't it sad how many good days are wasted by people that are harboring bitterness, anger, inappropriate responses? That's not fair. I didn't deserve that. How could somebody be so mean to me? A better question for you to ask is how can you be so mean to someone else? 
problem is the sin within us. And only in God's grace to remove it from us. If I have a biblical understanding of who we are as human beings, it doesn't surprise me that people can be so mean and hurtful. Doesn't mean it's easy to experience. When someone is unkind, it hurts. And the closer we are to the individual, the more deeply it hurts. It's a circumstance you can't change. But what really matters is, how are you coping with it? And youthfulness is gone like that. It's fleeting. I think part of what Solomon is indicating here is the fact that what do we typically call childhood and the early years of a human being's life? The formative years. And what you are cultivating as you're growing through childhood and early adulthood, you're laying the foundation of what you're going to be like the rest of your life. And so many of those habit patterns are going to be so hard to break. Even if God and his grace gives you life, They're woven within the fabric of your being. I find Christian people who before they were Christian saw their circumstance as the glass is always only half full still struggle with that reality. It's hard to see the positive of what's taking place. And what he's saying is there's only a brief period of time for the characteristics that are going to dominate your person to be formed within you. Don't waste your youth on harboring grudges, on being bitter, on making the hurts that you face in life affect who you are and how you act. Childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. From a practical standpoint, I think Solomon is indicating that it's not appropriate to respond that way because it doesn't do any good. I have to confess, I still have trouble with somebody driving inappropriately down the interstate. And I find no matter what I might say in my car to them, it doesn't change how they're driving. I get all bent out of shape. And what I need to do is I need to remove it. I need to put it off because our highways are filled with idiots who don't know how to drive. But so is our workplace, so is our neighborhood, so, is our, so are our homes. We all make boneheaded decisions at times. And so it doesn't do any good. 
And not only is it detrimental for me, but it's a poison that affects all of those who are around me. And I think sadly, it will spoil even the most enjoyable of occasions because you can't turn it on and then turn it off. When it keeps festering inside, it is always there. And every once in a while, like a volcano, the top will blow. But it's always undergirding everything that the person does. And there is no ability to really enjoy the good and the blessings that God has given. So it's easy enough to say we need to remove it. It needs to be separated from us. But how is it that I stay calm when I'm being bombarded by the things that irritate, that provoke, that upset, that hurt. When all around me gives way, how can I remain cool, calm, and dry? How did Daniel do it in the lion's den? How did Paul do it sailing on a ship on the Mediterranean Sea in a storm that even brought fear into the seasoned sailors who were on that ship and eventually it was shipwrecked? It's where your focus is. It's where their focus was. It was an understanding, I have a big God. The three friends of Daniel, when they were told by Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't bow down to this image that I've made, I'm going to cast you into the fiery furnace. You remember how they responded? They said, Nebuchadnezzar, you'll have to do what you think is right. But our God is able to deliver us from your hand and from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your idol. In other words, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew what it was to R-E-L-A-X in a very difficult circumstance. The bottom line is I need to be cultivating my understanding of who God is. When Isaiah declared it to the nation of Israel and at the end of chapter 40 he recounted how they were saying our way escapes the notice of God He isn't intervening on our behalf. Do you know what God said through Isaiah? To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you make of him? Look at the stars in the heavens. 
God leads them all forth by name. And because of the excellency of his power, not one of them is missing. Or I use the words of Jesus Christ. Christ said, why are you anxious about what happens in the stock market? Why are you anxious about whether you have enough food to eat, a place to sleep? Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. And if your father takes care of them, will he not do so more for you who are worth more than many sparrows? What happens is I look at the situation. I look at the circumstance. I become overwhelmed because you know what the reality is? I can't do anything about it. And I become fearful and afraid. No wonder Jesus said, you need to become like a little child. A child can be fearful of so many things, but you know what comforts them? Being in the lap and the arms of mom or dad. And so in the same way, Christ says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As an individual, I need to be the one who cultivates my relationship with God. I look for a greater understanding of how capable, how sufficient, how great he is. And what flows out of that is the reality that I can rest in him. Not only do I need to understand how big our God, my God is, but I also need to understand it's all under his control. God isn't only taking care of 30% of what happens in your life, 70%. God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He is the one who is working all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And to me, what is such a comfort is to understand that my God is not a reactive administrator as he rules in the heavens. You understand what I mean by that? There are so many CEOs that all they are is trying to put out fires. They're reacting to the things that are happening. God always has in place the solution to the problem before the problem ever comes. And I need to understand that God is in control of the things in my life, providing all that is necessary to bring to me what is for my good. And even when I get blindsided, even when he brings something that is such a bitter pill to swallow, even when I am 
blown out of the water by the unexpected circumstance that comes, I can take comfort in knowing that God is still doing in my life what is necessary to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ and always giving to me better than what I deserve. God's people are to be a people in all circumstances of life who have a hopeful, cheerful disposition. And as such, are to be people that when somebody does something unkind to them, when someone hurts them deeply, when something happens that is financially detrimental, physically detrimental, things within a family that are hard to deal with, God's people need to have that dependent trust in the Lord and R-E-L-A-X because of the great love that he has for each one of his children and always doing what is for their best good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. And how I pray, Father, that you would make us a people who, like little children, are resting in the lap of our Heavenly Father, regardless of what comes to pass, knowing that you have designed it for your glory and our good, through Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.